Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Coming up on today's show, well, it's earnings season, so we'll talk about a lot of earnings, including the earnings of Dick's Sporting Goods, Dollar Tree, and Dollar General. We'll also touch on DXL and their new CEO, but we'll lead today's show with the surprising decision to wind down operations at a main fashions brand. Again, a reminder to like us, rate us, however you do find us, and also check us out on Instagram and Twitter, both places at Retail Podcast. I'm updating pictures pretty much two, three times a week on Instagram and some interesting retail tidbits as well. Last week, we went to the highest retailer in the United States in terms of altitude, so kind of a pretty neat thing there. So as we mentioned, leading our show this week, we're going to talk about a Cena Retail Group. They made the decision to what they're calling wind down operations at one of their brands. And after reaching an agreement just a couple of months ago to sell off their largest brand in terms of store count in Maurice's, Asina is making the decision to eliminate their value price category altogether. And the brand they're selling off, Leighton, Dress Barn. Yeah, Dress Barn is the brand that has existed longest under their banner and was the main reason Asina was able to rise to prominence and acquire several other brands over the past few years. And the plans come just days after Dave Jaffe, Asina's CEO, ended up stepping down. Dress Barn, or Dress Barn, as it began with a space in between, started in 1962 and was initially owned by Rosalyn Jaffe. And somewhat ironically, the store was designed to market towards working mothers while also operating in the value goods space. And we say ironically because Rosalind Jaffe was herself a working mother whose son David took the reins of the company in the early 90s. Eventually, the space between dress and barn, as I just mentioned, was eliminated and the company grew steadily in the 2000s. So after all of those acquisitions of, let's say, Maurice's in 2005 and Limited 2, which ended up becoming the teen retailer Justice in 2009, the parent company as a whole rebranded to Asina back in 2011. So this is the umbrella company that we're talking about and all of the banders underneath it. So we look here and we see that with Asina now choosing to exit the Dress Barn brand, it is similar to L Brands maybe selling off Limited or Duckwall Alco if we want to go to some Midwestern retail closing off their Duckwalls chain in terms of the companies exiting their flagship concepts. So the Duckwalls, for instance, was the smaller of the two. It was actually one of the companies that was in the beginning stages of the Duckwall Alco company as a whole. And you see, fast forward to now, Trent, where Asina has seen notable weakness in its value segment consisting of Maurice's and Dress Barn. The sale of Maurice's was just completed on May 6th to Op Capita, although the deal was somewhat convoluted, as we'll remind our listeners. Asina received $210 million in cash, but will also hold a 49.6% interest in Op Capita's new affiliate that is operating Maurice's. And so additionally, we see that Asina will still support Maurice's through an operating services agreement, which is somewhat common in these types of scenarios. But nevertheless, the Maurice's sale was the first shoe to drop as Asina has been looking to maneuver more towards their kids and premium segments for some time. Those are 
where we see the highest margins for the company. And both Maurice's and Dress Barn, for the record, have been getting hammered with high single and low double-digit comp sales declines in the past three years. The company has been transparent about their affinity for their other business groups, as both Maurice's and Dress Barn have barely been mentioned on earnings calls in the lead up to this year. So perhaps they were looking to sell these brands off or these banners off for some time. Both brands have been subject to wide ranging store closures as well with the Cena's store rationalization program that we've mentioned on previous earnings calls. Now, these closures are pretty much as wide ranging as it gets with the entire brand projected to cease operations around 674 stores in total. However, the closures aren't going to come overnight for Dress Barn. We look here, the information regarding the wind down is actually contained within a small special spot on Dress Barn's website, something that is actually fairly rare. And the main point on the page is that nothing has happened just yet, and they're keeping all stores open just for now, and no hard and fast plans to close locations have been made to the public just yet. They also reaffirmed their commitment to keeping their website operational, at least for now, and honoring the Dress Barn credit card for the foreseeable future. Additionally, we have not received the dreaded all sales final notification as the company says they'll still on a return, still the line, and I quote, we invite you to shop with us and stock up before we close our stores, does seem a little bit ominous if you are a core customer or a customer that has been shopping at the banner for some time. And as always, the big focus for us is on the real estate. We like retail. We like retail real estate too. And so more specifically, we're kind of looking at what will happen to any leases left outstanding. Now, we should recall that the average length of lease for Dress Barn and Asina outlets in general is fairly short, under five years typically. So this will help to alleviate the burden of breaking the leases, but only somewhat, because whether you pay settlement fees or whether you continue to pay on the leases, that's still money going out the door with no chance of recouping it. But the chain has retained the assistance of A&G Realty Partners to help with the real estate issues that will be outstanding. So sometimes these type of firms exist in the role of a negotiator, basically attempting to negotiate settlements with landlords to find a cost-effective way out of the lease. This can work to the landlord's benefit if they feel like they can fill a space quickly. So if they feel like they can fill a space quickly, what they'll do is they'll take the settlement funds, get the new rent funds, plus usually that settlement fee gets reduced by a little bit. However, if a landlord does agree to a settlement and then can't fill the vacancy fairly quickly, may be a losing proposition for them. And in this case, if landlords were to feel that Asina might be in shaky financial position such that bankruptcy may be even a possibility, they might be inclined to accept a settlement so as to maybe mitigate the risk of losing out on income altogether. We saw this happen with a number of landlords that owned Kmart stores, for example. When Kmart closed down several stores, they had the option to settle or take continued rent payments. Some of them chose the latter, and then that wasn't a wise decision as Sears did elect bankruptcy. Once that bankruptcy came about, a lot of those lease agreements basically vanished. Now, all that said, Angie Realty Partners are actively seeking companies to take over the leases first. And in fact, they already have a massive link on their website, ANG Realty does, regarding favorable leases for Dress Barn, basically enticing companies to try and take over the remaining Dress Barn leases. Now, as a background, 
Angie Realty, this is something they do a lot of. So they're also assisting with the Shopco and Payless bankruptcies, several Sears and Kmart locations too, and Pier 1 Imports, which is interesting because they're not going bankrupt nor closing a ton of stores, among others. But what's interesting with the Pier 1 Imports and really any company that Angie Realty partners with is it's kind of like the writing is on the wall. If Pier 1 can get a decent offer for a particular lease, they might consider closing that given store. And looking at AMG's website, it's like a who's who of recent retail bankruptcies and closures. You have Delia's, Radio Shack, Bilo in the southeastern United States, Orchard Supply Hardware out in California, Golfsmith, Sports Authority, Bonton, and so forth. Now, as an aside, their website also gives us the chance to see just how ridiculous some of the Shopco leases were that they're attempting to sell off. Leighton and I were talking about this this week, kind of in the lead up to recording, how their website showing a lot of these Shopco leases. You're looking at over $10 a square foot for some of these rural locations. Just insane type of money that you would not figure for some of these rural locations that Shopco was signing off on, particularly newer builds one of the reasons no doubt that they ended up insolvent now moving back to dress barn here aside from their real estate issues they did cover some of the other basics in their press release as well they worked to quell any concerns from vendors and suppliers because they said the plan is to continue paying all of them in full just business as usual until they end up closing the stores you have to figure out there's some carryover from vendors and suppliers between Dress Barn and the other Asina brands. So no surprise there. Got to keep those relations positive with the vendors and suppliers because it's likely they use them for some of their other brands. And again, different situation here than a bankruptcy because the assumption here is that Asina as a whole is solvent. They can very much pay these vendors in full. They're not having trouble making their bills as of yet. They also noted that their associates will be provided with transition support, as is often the case. Now, Dress Barn, in terms of the associate load that they have versus the rest of Asina, Dress Barn has about 6,800 associates in total. Asina as a whole, before the Marisa's sale, was said to have around 63,000. And the benefit for some of these employees, Leighton, in many of these markets, Dress Barn shares adjacent real estate to other Asina brands. It's not uncommon to see maybe a Loft or an Ann Taylor right next to a dress barn or even in the same shopping complex. So it's kind of likely here that several dress barn employees might have opportunities elsewhere in the chain, and they may not be out of a job for long. Now, one key note about this entire wind-down situation was made by Neil Saunders of Global Data Retail. He mentioned a concern about the wind-down perhaps devaluing the Asina brand as a whole, since it is pretty transparent that they were seeking buyers for Dress Barn. The lack of a buyer, like the one found from Maurice's, certainly signals very little demand for Dress Barn as a whole. In turn, it causes one to wonder about the value of the rest of the portfolio and whether or not Asina's brands hold any cachet whatsoever. So basically, it's not a good look for a company when these supposedly differentiated brands have to completely shutter one and then eating those lease obligations and associated costs in the process because no one will end up touching it. You have to wonder if any buyer was seriously considering it or if the danger of the brand eventually going under anyhow was far too prevalent. Most articles on the subject this week have talked about what is next for Asina, but the general consensus out there is that this doesn't really help anything for the company overall, and that's where we stand on this topic as Asina doesn't get any money for their troubles to speak of. So 
doesn't really unlock a lot of cash like an outright sale would give them. And it is, to Neil Saunders' point, a bad look for the company as a whole. So in terms of the PR perception, it's not going to be good for them. They basically get two benefits and two benefits only, the benefit of being able to focus maybe on their stronger portfolio brands going forward and the potential benefit of not losing more money on Dress Barn. Again, we don't know exactly how much they were losing or at least projected to lose, let's say, if they kept a certain amount of stores open over the next few years, but it certainly was not going to be a flourishing concept. However, they'll incur a good deal of costs upfront to exit the concept, as we've mentioned, which does illustrate how doomed they perceive Dress Barn to be going forward. Because if you're losing money now in an effort to maybe stifle the losses going forward, a lot of their finance people were probably looking at it as a positive, And that really makes you wonder how bad really was the Dress Barn brand. And a quasi follow-up to last week's story about Foot Locker, Dick's Sporting Goods released earnings on Wednesday of this week. And this is a call we were looking forward to, especially considering where the state of flux is in a multitude of categories. And we're going to really look into Dick Sporting Goods' model and to see how it's going to be changing over the next couple of years. But first, not only did Foot Locker release earnings last week, but so did Hibbit Sports, which ended up beating on earnings per share estimates on an adjusted basis by a whopping 32 cents or nearly 25%. Hibbit showed strength in comps where they were up around 5.1%, but also traffic to both physical stores and their e-commerce site. All this while reaffirming plans to close approximately 8% of their store base in the next year. Dick Sporting Goods, on the other hand, comes into this quarter after spending the last few years attempting to build out their private label and women's selection and attempting to offer a little bit more value options for the consumers overall. And this is somewhat at odds with Foot Locker's company-wide goal of attempting to cultivate a high-end positioning in the marketplace. And you look through this earnings call, Trent, this earnings call was for their fiscal first quarter ending May 4th, 2019. Analysts expected earnings per share to arrive in line with last year's adjusted numbers at 59 cents per share. That was the Zach's consensus estimate, by the way. Dix beat that number, if only slightly, with adjusted earnings per share of 62 cents. So the bottom line beat expectations and improved on last year, but not all was rosy on the call for Dix. No, it wasn't, as their same-store sales numbers in particular were cause for concern, as they were flat against last year on a percentage basis. As it is, last year's first quarter comp sales were down about 2.5% accounting for an extra week all the way back in 2017. So with that extra week eliminated, still down 2.7%. So we saw decreasing last year. Then this year, you saw stagnation. And this is an atmosphere where, again, we remind everyone, Comsit Hibbit, without the recent City Gear acquisition, were up 5.1% this quarter, as we mentioned. And Comsit, the likes of Champs Sports, owned by Foot Locker, we're up double digits in the most recent quarter. And if we want to go even further, Big Five showed comps at 4.6% in their most recent quarter, although their most recent quarter did benefit from Easter moving into quarter two because Big Five is closed on Easter still, even without the Easter shift, much better than flat. And yet after all of this, Lauren R. Hobart, the president of Dick's, said that the company still feels as though they have a competitive advantage in sporting goods and are working to strengthen their leadership position. But 
What the numbers from the first quarter earnings call across all these companies tell us instead is that in terms of sales, at least, Dix is stagnating somewhat in terms of their market share and maybe even shrinking against their major competitors. Now, they do, however, forecast comps turning positive in Q2, and they do expect them to come in the flat to 2% increase range for the full year, right about in line of inflation. Their net sales, their top line sales, did increase slightly as a result of six net new Dix stores and one new Golf Galaxy store versus the previous year's quarter. Dix did, by the way, close two stores in the most recent quarter. That was really their first two closings since the 2017 fiscal year. By the way, of their store portfolio, just in case you're wondering, 727 stores are Dix branded and 130 carry other brands on them, most notably Golf Galaxy. And they have a handful of field and stream stores as well. And that field and stream part of it, that's an interesting component we'll get to in just a little bit. Elsewhere on the call, e-commerce sales were also up as expected for Dix. Their increases were right in line with the likes of others in the space, including Foot Locker and Champ Sports, as well as Hibbit, up 15% year over year. While we're comparing, by the way, e-commerce now accounts for about 13% of Dix's net sales, which is roughly in line with Foot Locker, but it is ahead of Big Five who has just slight e-commerce sales as they build out their platform, and Hibbit, whose e-commerce penetration as a percentage of sales, that's just above 8%. So Dix is perhaps a market leader or one of the market leaders in terms of e-commerce sales and the percentage of net sales they're getting from e-commerce. But again, you look at the overall same store sales and comps, and those are more or less flat. Finally, selling general and administrative expenses or up as a percentage of sales from last year from 24.63% to 25.36%. Gross profit was even with last year. And the company said the rising costs here, a factor of, you guessed it, higher shipping and fulfillment expenses and high freight costs. That's one of the reasons why we're seeing gross profit decrease with a lot of retailers or SGNA increases a percentage of sales with a lot of retailers. Now, all of these factors were offset somewhat by higher merchandise margins. So Dix is squeezing a little bit more margin out of their products. Part of this is because of their private label push. And again, something we'll talk about later in the story. But one of the interesting things on the Dix earning call is that they talk a lot about omnichannel, but unlike other retailers, Layton, when they talk about omnichannel, they talk about both the brick and mortar and the e-commerce presence in equal measure, whereas a lot of retailers, they're just going to talk about e-commerce. This is one of the really refreshing things about the Dick's earnings call. And despite their stagnant sales is what they focus on in equal measures is building out their brick and mortar portfolio as well as their digital platform. The vast majority of the time when a retailer refers to omnichannel on an earnings call, they really end up just talking about their e-commerce initiatives or building out their mobile sites. And so, again, really refreshing to get a down-to-earth perspective of what Dix has in store for the future and how they really truly envision their customer accessing them wherever, however, and in the most convenient way possible. And with Dix, there is a strong recognition that the value of buy online, pick up in-store really is important. And we really don't want to bore people here with the benefits again, but it's a crucial initiative to have a robust buy online, pick up in-store platform for the company. 
As a result, while the company is still very committed to building out a solid e-commerce platform, and in our opinion, it is a really good one, they went out of their way to discuss store openings as it pertains to e-commerce. They're tying it all in together, and we're not talking about store closures a lot here, although... They are looking to relocate and close just a few. But as with most retailers, they see a perceptible increase in e-commerce sales when they open a brick and mortar store in a new neighborhood or market. Obviously, more customers are going to be more acquainted with the brand and therefore get curious and go online and search for what they have. And to that end, they reaffirmed plans to actually expand their brick and mortar presence in the coming quarters. Looking at seven total new dick stores across the next three quarters and one Seoul, additional Golf Galaxy store. This is in addition to four store relocations, which I had just mentioned, three for Dix and one for Golf Galaxy. Most of the store movement is scheduled to take place in the third quarter of this year, designed to be in place for the fall shopping season. That should be very good for those holiday shoppers, although a bit too late for the fall sports buying season in some cases. As with other retailers, they've noted that in the past about their relative success in their relocated stores, they're really able to offer more efficient and optimal square footage as far as where to move certain things on the sales floor befitting their target markets. And that's not to say they're ignoring e-commerce either. They are planning on opening two new e-commerce fulfillment centers, one in New York and one in California, now my new home state. And both of these, like with their stores, are happening in the third quarter. As a whole, they're expecting CapEx to come in around $230 million for the fiscal year, with much being tied up in new store development and e-commerce initiatives. So having to build out that robust omni-channel experience does not really require a small amount of cash. They're going to have to put forth a ton of money in order to really keep up with the competition. As we look towards the other Dix initiatives we see on the call, company leadership continued to address several of their ongoing initiatives as they aim to emerge as the leader in the sporting goods space, or at the very least, attempt to fend off the stagnation that claims Sports Authority is a victim in 2016, a widely covered bankruptcy that we covered. And we really thought, by the way, after that Sports Authority bankruptcy and several other smaller regional chains around the United States, that Dick Sporting Goods was really going to be the one-stop shop, but you really do have to wonder if they can have these initiatives going forward in order to stave off that stagnation that really claimed victim to all of those other retailers that were huge in terms of volume. Those sales didn't directly go to Dick's after they closed either, and so that was really interesting for us to dig into, and another interesting maneuver for the company that owns field and stream stores here with Dick's is that they actually talked about the lack of strength of the hunting category in some of their locations. Overall, they said hunting as a whole negatively impacted comps by a whole percentage point during the quarter. Ed Stack, their CEO, mentioned that stores that removed the hunting category in 2008, 10 and all, ended up showing some improvement. The hunting category has been replaced by what Dix calls a more localized assortment in those 10 stores. And you see that the stores began to see a turnaround in the fourth quarter of last year, and that continued into the first quarter of this year. So you see that momentum coming in from a varied product selection. And as such, Dix is planning to remove the hunting category from around 125 stores now in the near future, replacing it in each circumstance with an item or items specific to that local market, which is really smart. Sometimes you see even smaller retailers, such as 
maybe some grocers such as Sprouts and Whole Foods doing the same sort of thing, trying to localize, if you will, their selection. Only a handful of these are actually scheduled for 2019, but still, you have to look at those additional comments that Stack made. Their intent to complete a strategic overview of the hunting category across the entire store chain is underway. Or to put it another way, looking to decrease their exposure to a category that just may be in danger overall. That really is lacking in terms of momentum there. It's interesting because Sportsman Warehouse actually has recently referenced certain retailers cutting back on the hunting category as an opportunity for them going forward. This may well be the case, but it appears as though it just really isn't an asset class for Dick stores. And another interesting thing to note is that Sportsman's Warehouse also had their earnings call this last week, and I don't know that the hunting category is an asset for them either. In fact, saw same-store sales fall mid-single digits, and they actually mentioned on their earnings call the fact that they saw hunting softness, particularly in February. That's when Dick saw the hunting softness as well. So interesting that this category might be shrinking back a little bit, and unlike Dick's, Sportsman's Warehouse isn't as diversified to be able to maybe withstand that pullback on a larger level. And this is something analysts asked a lot of questions about on the call. And Stack pretty much said, hey, we're doing a strategic overview. That's all I can say at this point, because we don't have the data to know if we're going to extend that past 125 stores in total. And some analysts were saying, hey, we know hunting Surely is doing well in a few markets. And Stack said, you're right, but we have to do an overall overview of the hunting category in our chain and explore strategic alternatives to know exactly where we're going with each one of the stores. And like you mentioned, Leighton, they do run field and stream stores. So it's different to hear someone on an earnings call that is the CEO of a company that owns field and stream stores talking about maybe removing the hunting category from their flagship brand. But once again, when we talk about Dick's earnings calls, private label brands in the past have been front and center, and they were front and center again on this one. And they have a long-term sales goal. They mentioned again this week of $2 billion per year for their private label products. Now, that's not something they're going to reach this year, probably not even next year, but they want to reach that sometime in the near future. And the company said that there was momentum in their Calia brand of women's apparel spurred along somewhat by the increased emphasis on the brand chain-wide. Now, that brand, not in all of their stores. They did add it to 80 new stores during the quarter. Additionally, they focused on giving Calia more premium floor space, something that seems maybe a bit counterintuitive when you talk about a value-centric private label brand going up against the likes of Adidas, Under Armour, and Nike. But again, this is where you're seeing margins if you're dicks, and this is where they feel like they can get customers coming back again and again. Now, beyond the women's apparel section, they're also plotting the release of a new children's line in what they're calling DSG. The DSG brand isn't only a children's line. It also exists in men's and women's, but their main push for the line will be towards children and, of course, the parents of those children during the back-to-school season. This is all part of a larger store reset that they plan on doing during the second quarter as a whole to refresh store layouts, make things a little bit easier to find, but also push more of their private label brands front and center because, 
Again, they're seeing strength in these categories. They're seeing strength in other value-priced brands. We've talked about their connection with Reebok on the show before. So they feel like these private label brands are really going to help push up the top-line sales in the individual stores, not because necessarily they're commanding high prices for them. The opposite is, in fact, true. It's a much more value price point than what you would see out of, say, Under Armour. But one thing they have noted is that, you know, hey, those brands are picking up a little bit of momentum there and they feel like they can push volume out of the stores and not just the margin on those products and of course margin a nice fringe benefit when you're pushing volume on those private label brands now one final note is when asked on the analyst q a specifically about under armor again under armor a brand that dix has mentioned a lot in the past stack did say that he felt under armor had made a bit of progress in the stores specifically they mentioned under armor on the men's side making some positive progress no word on women's apparel with under armor but any Positive momentum is good for UA, whom we discussed as not being singled out as a growth brand during the Foot Locker call last week when about 10 other brands were. Dix has said in the past that they're hopeful Under Armour will work with them in terms of building out a more attractive product assortment for customers. Honestly, Dix has been pretty much the most forthcoming on trying to work with Under Armour, along with Kohl's, of course, with their so-called store within a store there, to try and create some momentum for the brand, because that momentum has been tough to come by. We talked on last week's show about how you're starting to see that shrinking back of the brand power of Under Armour. Dix still holding out, and they think Under Armour could provide value for them going forward. Well, we close out this edition of the podcast with... Guess what? The dollar store space, our favorite arena in retail. If you count Ollie's Bargain Outlet as a retail dollar store, but I don't I don't know if you would. But as Dollar Tree and Dollar General this week both released earnings prior to market open on Thursday. It's exciting times for us in particular. Probably the most excited we get throughout earnings season is looking into these two companies in particular. In short, Trent, the results, both chains are doing well, but Dollar General is killing it across the board per usual, we might add, because this week's podcast episode seems to focus heavily on comparisons. That's exactly what we're going to do here is compare these two different earnings calls between these two different dollar concepts. We look at the earnings for Dollar Tree Trent. Zach's consensus estimates projected adjusted earnings per share of $1.15. They came in just short at $1.14. Not bad. The slight miss wasn't enough to dampen investor sentiment. However, as the stock popped after the earnings call for reasons we'll talk about here in a moment. Dollar General, meanwhile, blitzed analyst expectations overall. Adjusted earnings per share of $1.48 compared to expectations of around $1.39. So similar to Dollar Tree, their stock spiked as well on Thursday following the call. It was nice to see positive performance from both companies after what some, perhaps hyperbolically, it called a retail slaughter on Wednesday. And as we've said all along, you have to look at the industry as a whole and we really have to see that these two retailers in particular are doing a solid job despite activist investor concerns on the Dollar Tree front. And we talked about that a few months ago. They're sort of relinquishing the pressure that they put on Dollar Tree to try to get rid of the family dollar banner. But now let's discuss some of those same store sales for both banners. We see that Dollar General came through with phenomenal same store sales at 3.8%. 
We often talk about how difficult it is for fully mature retailers to hit same store sales at a rate far outpacing inflation, probably double inflation in this case, but both Dollar General and Walmart did so in the last quarter. This, by the way, on the back of what Trent had remarked last week is pretty much stagnant food inflation. So these are what these companies, by the way, are trying to push more and more is their consumable segments. Meanwhile, Dollar Tree's comps were solid with enterprise comps coming in at an increase of around 2.2%. The Dollar Tree portion of the company was in good shape. Again, the company Dollar Tree Incorporated is made up of the Dollar Tree banner and Family Dollar, for those of you who didn't know. But as always, with a 2.4% increase when accounting for currency fluctuations, did Dollar Tree come in when with same-store sales? And we should remember that largely this is independent of inflation since they have a mostly stagnant price point. And this is all the more impressive. Think about their selection overall. Dollar Tree sells things at just a dollar. So you think of compound inflation over the last 10 years and how much they are still able to push out of their stores. And by the way, how their selection has grown year over year, very impressive. And that is exactly why we are fans of this concept. That is, by the way, Dollar Tree's 45th consecutive quarter of same-store sales growth. That's 11 years for some people who can do that easy division. And honestly, Trent, that is extremely impressive. But what's most impressive is that they just keep doing better than inflation in some quarters. Yes, some quarters, same-store sales will just be maybe 0.9% year over year as far as increases are concerned. But this 2.2% number is extremely well put out there, especially in the face of other retailers trying to compete in this particular arena. And when considering that a lot of people are talking about certain markets being cannibalized, there's too many dollar store concepts out there. Maybe there's three on one particular busy intersection. Does not matter for Dollar Tree. They are still firing on all cylinders. And what really stole headlines was Family Dollar in this particular case, which reported a 1.9% same-store sales increase, the largest such increase since Dollar Tree acquired the banner back in 2016. So this is probably why activist investors really let off the gas in terms of wanting to, again, divest that brand, because maybe they got some inside information that those refurbished stores were working out to the benefit of the larger company. These increases along with the affirmation of the Family Dollar Refresh program outlined in previous earnings calls, helped to boost the stock price on Thursday. Again, all of these contributing to positive investor sentiment. Overall, net sales were up 8.3% trend at Dollar General, fueled by a mix of increased store count and those same-store sales increases, which we just remarked were 3.8%. For Dollar Tree, net sales were up 4.6%, fueled by pretty much the same mix. We should remind everyone that despite talk of Dollar Tree shuttering some family dollar stores, which is indeed happening and happening to a greater extent in this second quarter, the quarter we're currently in, their overall store count is still growing, still building their top line. They've said in the past and maintained in this call that their newer locations, their new openings, particularly with family dollar continue to outpace legacy locations in terms of sales. So you're still seeing net new openings for the company. As far as other earnings results are concerned, gross profit, a number we always look at in the dollar store segment, that was down for Dollar Tree. And Dollar Tree, once one of the most profitable retailers, not only in this segment, but throughout all of retail, Dollar Tree saw the decrease as a percentage of net sales due to a number of factors, but primarily those pesky freight costs 
and also lower initial markup at family dollar. We'll talk about this in a moment. Dollar General also saw gross profit dial back just slightly as a percentage of net sales. Not only was this driven by higher freight costs for them as well, but also what Layton talked about, a higher percentage of consumables in the sales mix. Now, these items, think about something like a simple produce item like bananas, for example, which a number of Dollar Generals are beginning to carry, or a gallon of milk. Those items carry with them a lower initial markup than general merchandise goods in the whole. If you take it as a usual circumstance, there are, of course, outliers. Generally speaking, those those consumables are going to carry with them a lower markup. Now, this wasn't just an empty excuse for Dollar General either. Ordinarily, we'd say, yeah, but really, how many more consumables are you selling as a percentage of overall revenue? But they went in-depth in their sales growth breakdown on the call. Dollar General noted that consumables were up a whopping 9.2% year-over-year in the quarter. Meanwhile, you look at other categories. Seasonal, also a solid quarter, up 6.6%. Home products, up 5.9%. Apparel, basically stagnant as a 0.3% increase in that category. But when you look again as a whole, overall net sales were up 8.3% at Dollar General. A lot of that coming from consumables, which are taking up a larger piece of the pie. As a result, you're seeing gross profit decrease a little bit. Now, each group provided an update on some of their organizational initiatives. For Dollar General, their initiatives center around a higher number of consumables, like we said, and a breakneck store expansion plan for Dollar Tree. Meanwhile, their initiatives include also a higher number of consumables, but two other big projects, their Family Dollar Improvement Plan and their Dollar Tree Plus Plan, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But we'll start with Dollar General. Part of Dollar General's increase push towards carrying consumables in stores is making sure the product is there when the customer needs it. So it's not just about marketing and selling the consumables itself, but it's making sure that it's in stock because their niche is basically not only a dollar store, but a souped up convenience store as well. So management of the company knows the convenience proposition is only in play if customers can rely on certain products being in stock. And so as a result, company-wide, what Dollar General has done is they've undertaken a different approach to inventory. And so they've begun to basically stock more of certain products on a store-by-store level to ensure that there are no inventory shortfalls. You know, there was a time not too long ago where Dollar General relied on a lot of just-in-time inventory stocking, basically. But here we're seeing the stores actually have more inventory on hand for replenishment. And this can actually be seen in the numbers in an 8.2% increase in inventory held by value on a store-by-store basis year over year. Now, this increase is fairly huge in terms of magnitude because we usually don't see swings above around 5% in one direction or another for stable companies like Dollar General. Now, between relocating and refurbishing existing stores and opening new locations, the company poured out $99 million in CapEx in the first quarter alone. This amount for both the new locations and the remodels of existing ones and relocations, that makes up over two-thirds, Layton, of their total first quarter CapEx. 
Dollar General also reaffirmed their plan to open 975 stores, relocate 100 stores, and complete around 1,000 store remodels in the fiscal year. In the first quarter, they matched their total number of net new store openings from last year's first quarter of 227. They had an ending store count after the first quarter of 15,597. That is just massive. Basically, if you want to think about it in terms of maybe Dollar General is opening around 2.5 stores every day in the U.S., that is basically what they're doing. And remember this, the next time you see an article about store closures or a retail apocalypse, they're opening a massive amount of stores and a multitude of new markets, by the way. And with that, we move on to Dollar Tree and some of their initiatives. They're trying to refresh the family dollar chain, of course, and include a large amount of planned store closures with that chain, something we've talked about here for a while. That's why I say, of course, but some media outlets picked up on it in March for the first time. And some articles said Family Dollar is no longer Amazon proof and other such things without taking into account that the store chain was actually going to be subject to ongoing optimization after the 2016 merger. So this has been a work in progress. And while some have criticized it, maybe rightly so here and there, that it has been a little bit slow to take off, it is now taking hold, we can see from this earnings call. Anyhow, the company reiterated that they expect as many as 390 stores to close this year, many of these in this current quarter, the second quarter. It's not all about store closures, though, as it is also looking to refresh some of the old family dollar formats. They call the new format H2 locations, and they grow that number of H2 locations by about 350 stores, and they did so in the first quarter alone. And you look at those H2 locations, they have increased the number of coolers similar to Dollar Tree's own refresh about a decade ago where you now have frozen goods and maybe milk and eggs to choose from. But they also tap into organizational synergies with Dollar Tree's section within Family Dollar stores. And this is also partially responsible for the lower initial merchandise markup at Family Dollar. So that's interesting because if you go into a Family Dollar store, the price points anecdotally do seem lower than they were a few years ago before the merger had happened in 2016. So another interesting initiative from our end, at least, is their commitment to add alcoholic beverages to around 1,000 family dollar locations in 2019. What better way than to serve the public with those kinds of things? But this would serve as a bit of a differentiator from other outlets if done well. Of course, there are a number of considerations here, including licensing and establishing connections with distributors since alcohol is mostly funneled through a sanctioned distribution network. It's highly regulated. Trent came from that industry, I believe, in the retail sector. But you have to look at all of those intricate parts and to make sure that they work together in such a way that's both legal and appealing to the customer. However, it is a profitable area for most grocery stores and convenience stores. No reason to think it couldn't boost top-line sales at the very least for Family Dollar. Despite the acceleration with store closings, the company is still adding net stores as a whole in the first quarter, around 66 in all. Again, something you don't catch from those headlines that were all so negative back in March. They rebranded 45 Family Dollar stores to Dollar Tree stores as well, something that's been going on for a little while since they've acquired the brand. But as far as the Dollar Tree plus plan it's going to be in a new trial stage for about 100 locations to expand price points past one dollar and we were wondering when this was actually going to take place it's kind of a sad era to come to an end if you think about it 
And in that sort of regard, if you look at it as the glass half full approach, if you will, this came about partly as a result of activist investor pressure, but analyst pressure as well, with some saying that Dollar Tree was sitting on a pile of cash. And you look at all of those opportunities they could unlock if they widen their selection to maybe items that are two or three dollars a piece. And we are firm believers that a change in price point should be last resort for Dollar Tree and that those clamoring for it likely haven't set foot in a Dollar Tree store in quite some time because there may be a lack of understanding about their target market. Basically, in order for this to do well, two conditions must be met, again, in our opinion. I think the first condition is that the Dollar Tree Plus format has to be contained to certain areas of the store. You don't want the products being commingled for a fact that I'll talk about here in a second. And then the second aspect of it is the format has to be used to introduce additional products to the store rather than just to hike prices on existing store products. You don't want to take an existing store product and say, hey, we're just going to charge more for it. We're going to move it up to the $1.50 or $2 price point there. A couple of different reasons for this from a store mechanism standpoint. The reason you want it contained to certain areas of the store is because the minute you begin commingling products, you have to worry about shelf signage. You have to worry about price checks. You have to worry about a little bit of congestion at the front end in a retailer that doesn't have a lot of people working the front end. In fact, a lot of front end employees at Dollar Tree will be stocking most of their shift. And so any congestion on the front end, any confusion as to the price point, that's going to be a negative for the retailer. So what you're looking at is a lot more of a system like what Big lots might use, like what Dollar General used to use not too long ago, where the prices should be posted on each product themselves. And of course, you've got additional manpower in order to do that. But at the same time, you kind of remove some of the other obstacles, because imagine Dollar Tree having to do a full on store refresh, adding signage adding different things to their store in order to accommodate these new products. That is a massive undertaking and probably not a reasonable one when you're thinking about it. Now, my next point is that what Leighton was talking about in terms of the target market, I think a lot of the activist investors, and I, I could be wrong, I could be mistaken, but a lot of the activist investors and a lot of the retail analysts that were saying Dollar Tree needs to expand their price point, I don't think they've set foot in a Dollar Tree in quite some time. Because if you spend any amount of time in a Dollar Tree, and again, Leighton and I are retail nerds. Sometimes we go to retailers just to see what's going on at those retailers, to check out who their target market is. And quite honestly, their target market needs to know about that $1 price point, needs to have that security of the $1 price point being there. And again, you've got a lot of confusion that'll be created if you start to increase prices on products that were initially $1 to begin with. So I think they've got to be careful in how they roll out the process here. I think they're doing perhaps the right thing just by placating the activist investors because neither Leighton nor I think Dollar Tree was doing all that poorly in the first place before the activist investors started barking up their tree. They've had plans for family dollar in the works for a while, and those activist investors are now seeing that those are working. So I think this trial program is more just a program to placate those activist investors. I do think it's probably inevitable at some point that their price points have to move upward just a little bit. But again, they have to remain true 
to who they are as a company. And those additional price points have to be few and far between in order for their concept to work. And for evidence of this, I would just look at the difference between your Dollar Tree core consumer and your five below core consumer. Different income groups, different age groups, and different reasons for shopping at those two businesses. I think a lot of people are pointing at Dollar Tree and saying, well, why can't they be more like five below? Different concept altogether. And again, a different target market there, especially we're talking about more consumables on the Dollar Tree front. One other thing I did want to note on Dollar Tree before we wrap up the story, they do remain on schedule to fully complete integration of their store support centers by July of this year, basically the distribution centers. It's been a multi-year process since 2016, but they finally feel as though their distribution will be more streamlined between the two brands, Family Dollar and Dollar Tree going forward. So we'll close out this story by talking about the stock. So each individual stock here for Dollar Tree, they were up right around 5% at the beginning of the day. By the end of the day, the market had started to go down a little bit on a macro level, still finished about 3% up to Dollar Tree. But as has been the case throughout this story, Dollar General did outperform Dollar Tree on the market Thursday as a whole as well. Dollar General at times was up nearly 9%, ended the day up 7%. So a lot of analysts saw that earnings call, liked what they saw from Dollar General, a company that just keeps growing with no end in sight. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We've reached the final segment of the Retail Focus Podcast, a segment we call Looking Ahead, where H. Layton and I take a look at a story we're keeping an eye on for the next week, month, or year, and we begin with Layton. My story has to do with logistics, and this ties into retail because more and more people in the media, people everywhere are talking about the increased capacity that Amazon has for its own fulfillment systems. You see a lot of Amazon trucks now, Amazon 747 and 767 airplanes in the sky, you really have to wonder what kind of market share they're going to be taking from the likes of USPS and FedEx to some degree and UPS as they pretty much branch out to all of those that USPS being the most major partner with their shipping routine. But the report came out earlier this week that FedEx ground will actually be delivering or looking to deliver all seven days within a week. Right now it's actually limited to six except on some certain circumstances, but seven days a week going forward, this is really going to help in terms of all companies, not just maybe Amazon when they need FedEx as a special partner here and there, but all e-commerce companies that want to be able to deliver all seven days of the week to their customer to try to increase that sustainment for those customers, that happiness, if you will, being able to order something and get it the next day, no matter what day that is. So if you order something on Saturday, it sure would be nice to have it on Sunday instead of Monday or Tuesday. And that's exactly what they're going to be looking at. They actually quoted or were quoted, their COO was saying that the average daily volume for small parcels in the U.S. is expected to actually double by 2026, basically saying that the market for e-commerce goods or smaller goods that people are usually buying in an impulse manner 
it's not capped at all yet. There's still much more room to grow in terms of e-commerce over the next seven or so years. And I think that really speaks to the competition that's going to happen within the different parcel services. So I'm extremely curious to see what this is going to do for the industry. And if Amazon looks at this as sort of maybe an encroachment into their plans to have an increased delivery schedule there. A 24-7 model is something that everyone is probably going to be looking at over the next few years. And it's funny because it's one of those things. It's like the initiatives from Walmart here recently where they're trying to lower the threshold for free shipping or next day shipping or two day shipping. It's a direct aim at Amazon. And really you drive to zero. It ends up commoditizing the logistics space. And I think in the end, all the companies are going to find a way to make it really dynamic and cost-effective for customers to be able to demand something in a short period of time and get it to their doorstep as expected. So curious to see exactly what it means over the next couple of years in terms of how many companies are going to be partnering with the likes of FedEx to make those types of availabilities happen. And if it's going to affect things like maybe the grocery space, which we talk about having really an Amazon proof model in terms of maybe people still wanting to go through those produce sections and pick out their produce instead of going to maybe an online sector where maybe the bananas are a little underripe and they have to wait a few days now in order to eat them. But as for now, that is my looking ahead. Curious to see how it works out. If you're curious, this article that I've been reading is on the Retail Dives website, but it is pretty much all out there in terms of the massive competition out there between FedEx, UPS, USPS, and others. Hey, Leighton, you know one thing that you can't get very quickly if you were to request it? Size 15 dress shoes. And the reason I know that, I was told to pick up a pair for a wedding I'm going to be in this weekend. It was kind of a last minute thing. I wear size 15 or 16 in terms of dress shoes. Not a single retailer offered these dress shoes online to where I could get overnight or even two day shipping. Even Amazon was promising basically three-day shipping under Prime, and I live in a fairly large metro area. So what does one do? Well, I live in a metro area of over 500,000 people. Literally the only store with size 15 dress shoes is Destination XL, or more accurately put, Casual Mail XL. So I say all of that mostly to complain, but also to say this, because it got my mind thinking about a press release I had read last week regarding Destination XL's new CEO. So their new president and CEO, Harvey Cantor, joined the earnings call last week. This earnings call came out last Friday. Now, comp sales were down for them. They'd kind of struggled a little bit. They showed a net loss that was in line with last year's. But one of the things that Mr. Cantor said on the earnings call is that their main focus and their number one initiative is to grow their customer file. That's something I saw firsthand today when purchasing those size 15 shoes. Now, I'm appreciative that they had those shoes, but one thing I noted is that Destination XL, or in this case, Casual Mail XL, only has one employee working at any given time. And in this case, they had one employee working during a very busy portion of the schedule. So they had a line. Obviously, the throughput's not good to begin with. 
But one of the things that this employee did with every single customer is ask just about every piece of data that customer had. So between name, full name, address, email address, phone number, zip code, just about everything you could possibly ask a customer before that customer could check out. Now, on one hand, it does some good things in terms of being able to track those customers, being able to market to those customers, being able to figure out what they're in your store for. On the store side, it does good things. But when you've got a line of five people and you're having to ask each person that question and take time to type it in for each question, I can tell you the people in line were getting really agitated and one person actually walked out before purchasing a product. So you look at how valuable that customer file is versus maybe how valuable that sale could have been to Destination XL. Now, I know that's anecdotal evidence. We don't use a lot of anecdotal evidence here on the show. My question in terms of looking ahead is this. Exactly how valuable is that customer file to Harvey Cantor and the rest of the leadership at Destination XL. If it's that valuable to you, perhaps you think about maybe staffing your stores to a greater level. Perhaps you think about maybe additional ways you can collect that information versus just verbally at the checkout, hindering your throughput. Perhaps you think about maybe having the customer input it themselves. Either way, you've got to do something because the current system as it's set up now to collect data in these DXL stores, isn't working. And it's not working in the casual mail XL stores either. And so you've got to do something to develop that, whether it's worth them staffing their store with one extra staff member to be able to handle the front end, or whether it's putting another system in place. You have to think if that data is really that important, it's going to be worth it to the company going forward. And that is certainly something that I'm going to be interested in and actually keeping an eye on physically here over the next three to six months. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. For Leighton, I'm Trent saying so long until next week. We'll be back with you with more retail news and notes. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.